Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. This is, uh, again, this is kind of an unusual feeling for me to be up here, but I appreciate the opportunity. It's been so good to, to be able to worship with you these last several months since we finished up at the church in El Paso in mid-September, and we thought we were going to be here uh, for a long time, and then the Lord has seen otherwise, and starting in February, we'll be serving a church down in Congerville, Rock Creek Bible Church, but uh, already I'm looking forward to being back with you. Uh, I don't know about you, but I was just moved by the music this morning, the truth of what we were singing. It, uh, it touched my heart. I grew up in a Christian family. I grew up uh, listening to the gospel, going to Sunday school and all the rest of those things. And uh, the image that I took away, I'm not saying this was necessarily the image that my Sunday school teachers gave, but this is the one that I took away from all my years in Sunday school, was that Jesus was basically a really nice guy. He was uh, gentle Jesus, sweet and mild, and all the rest of those things. And then as I got older and started reading the Gospels a little more closely, I was shocked so many times. <laughs> I can't believe Jesus said that. Really? Are you kidding me? And I've come to the conclusion that if you don't, if you are not shocked at times as you read through the gospel and listen to what Jesus says, you're not paying real close attention. One of the passages, or the passage that we have this morning, I think, as I studied it and wrestled with it and listened to other people preaching on it, by the way, one of the sermons I listened to, the guy preached for an hour on this passage. So I just want to warn you, warn you I'm not going to do that, okay? But uh, we will get to lunch on time. But this is, uh, this is to me, is one of those passages where you just kind of say, are you serious? Uh, Jesus said that, really. I thought it'd be good just to kind of, because as you go through a book like uh, Luke, as Pastor Aaron has been doing, you preach through the whole book, sometimes you, you, you forget where you're at exactly in the book. And so I just wanted to give you a real quick uh, uh, rehearsal of, of where we're at. Jesus, at this time, the passage we're reading this morning, Luke chapter 12 into chapter 13, He's in Judea, okay? So Judea would have been what the Jewish people would have considered the favored part of the kingdom of Israel. The, the Galileans, they were a little, uh, they looked at askance a little bit. They weren't quite the way the people in Judea wanted them to be. It's also in the last year of Jesus' ministry, as far as we can tell. So within a year, he's going to be going to the cross. And so we, we come into the middle of a long teaching section this morning uh, where Jesus is teaching his disciples. We read in verse 1 of chapter 12, 
In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, so there's a a huge crowd of people, sorry about that, there's a huge crowd of people, but Jesus spends time in that speech, in that message that he gives to the huge crowd of people, at times he addresses his disciples particularly. So we see that in in verse 1, we see that also in verse 13. We see in verse 41 that he talks to Peter specifically in response to a question that he has. So there's also this large crowd that's there. We see that in already in chapter 12, verse 1. We see that in chapter 12, verse 13. Verse 54, we read that Jesus is speaking to the crowd in chapter 13, verse 1. So there's, there's a real mixture of people here. A huge crowd, thousands of people. Jesus is speaking to all of them. How he did that without microphones, without amplification, I don't know. Uh, But at times, he's directing his attention to the disciples, at times to this larger group. And he says some things that I think are rather surprising, rather shocking. We want to read those, that first section right now. If you want to follow along, Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 53. Luke chapter 12, 49 to 53. Jesus is speaking. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, uh, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So a case in point, right, for what I said about Jesus saying some rather surprising and shocking things. And I think what Jesus is talking about here, as I've studied the passage, I think that Jesus says, first of all, you need to understand why I'm here. You need to know what my mission is. He's speaking perhaps directly to Peter, but he's speaking beyond that to the, to the crowd and to the rest of the disciples as well. And Jesus talks about fire. He talks about a baptism that he's going to go through that's very distressing. And he talks about how he... The Prince of Peace is not here to bring peace but division. Now, all three of those things might might surprise us, and we we might find ourselves saying, yeah, but wait a minute, what about where it says, and if you're having those thoughts, welcome to the club. I had those thoughts over the last week as well. And some people uh, who don't take the integrity of the Bible very seriously would even say, this is not Jesus talking. This is the disciples putting things back in, back into the Gospels later on. But what does Jesus mean? I, I take it that Jesus actually said these things. What does Jesus actually mean? He says, first of all, in verse 49, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth. Now, fire might bring up a lot of different connotations to us. It can be a very comforting thing. If you go into a a mountain cabin and it's cold outside, it's nice to feel a, a fire burning. Isn't it? it could be a sign of hospitality, especially in those days. If people had a fire burning, that meant they were ready to cook food. They were ready to welcome people. 
It also has the idea of destruction, of course, because fire can destroy. Uh, so we need to look at not what it means to us, what fire means to us, but what it means in the Bible. And in the Bible as a whole, it can have some of those same ideas. But in Luke in particular, in Luke's gospel, Luke uses the word fire seven times. There's only one of those times that it speaks about a literal fire. It's when Peter's warming himself by the fire before he betrays Jesus, before he denies knowing Jesus. All but one of the rest of the times that it's used, it clearly is talking about judgment, destruction. In fact, John the Baptist is the great example of that in chapter 3. He says, uh, he says there, there's a fire that's going to be burning. Well, I'll just go ahead and read those to you. Uh, I don't want to give you a false impression. Uh, chapter 3, verse 9 even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 17, his winnowing fork, speaking of the Messiah, of Jesus, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay, there's very much a a judgment idea. And in the context, if you were here last week or if you were reading, uh, we're not here, but had read the previous context, you'll see that uh, Pastor Aaron was talking about how Jesus was talking about judgment in the context. He says there's a judgment that is coming and it has to do with him. And we say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then he goes on and says, do not think that I came, oh, let's see here. I don't, I, my, my mind is not always quite, it's, it's like a steel trap that's already sprung, you know what I'm saying? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So it seems like Jesus is saying there, I'm not here to judge. I'm here to save. So how are we going to reconcile those things? I think the next verses help us understand this. Jesus says in verse 50, I have a baptism that's coming. I have a baptism that's coming. Now, if you've been paying attention to the Gospel of Luke, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus was already baptized back in chapter 3 by John the Baptist. That's, he's already been baptized. What is he talking about baptism again for? Well, you kind of need to go to Mark chapter 10 to get the, the full meaning of what Jesus is saying. Remember when James and John came to Jesus and he said, uh, they said to Jesus, you know, we'd like to have the prime seats in the kingdom when you come. And Jesus says, can you be baptized with my baptism? And he was looking forward to the cross. He says, this is my baptism. My baptism is my death. He says, are you prepared to undergo that? Within a year, Jesus is going to be going to the cross. And he says, I have great distress as I think about my coming baptism. My coming death, in other words. Think about Jesus in the garden. Talk about being overcome by distress. That certainly describes what, what Jesus is going through. But it's also why 
he came. Look what it says there in verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with. It says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. That is why I'm here. I'm here to undergo this baptism, this death, this this is why I have come. Jesus came to die for us. But much more than that, Jesus came in his baptism, in his death, to set in motion God's plan, not only to free us from the grip of sin, but to free all of creation from the grip of sin. Everything is going to be restored. And it all comes back to this moment where Jesus says, I have a baptism that I'm going to to go through. There's going to be a restoration, but it's going to come at the price of the death, of the baptism, of the judgment fire that fell on Jesus because of our sins and the sins of, that had infected the world. And then he says, verse 51 and 53, he says, I've come to bring division, not peace. That's kind of confusing too because we say, well, he's, he's the prince of peace and certainly Jesus is, is bringing peace. And well, in the context of what he's talking about here, about, his, about the judgment, about the baptism that he's going to go through, he says, that is going to play out in not peace between people, between all people, but it's going to play out as division between many, many people. Some people are going to embrace the fact that this was why Jesus came. That his death, that his going through the judgment was going to spare us from judgment. They're going to embrace that fact and own that they're going to accept Jesus' purpose, and others people are going to say, no. That's not the Jesus we want, or that is not possible that Jesus' death could accomplish all of that. So some people are going to reject the message. Some people are going to accept it. I don't know about you, but I would suggest that if you are a believer, that if you're living for Jesus Christ, you either have, or you are, or you will experience at some point that sense of division from other people. Because if you embrace the message of Jesus, other people are going to reject that message and thus reject you. That's just the way things work. That's just the way it works, isn't it? There are people that have given their lives because they've embraced Jesus. We don't face that kind of persecution in this country, but some of us, many of us perhaps, have felt that division within our family. People that think we're religious nuts. Some of us have felt that at work, where you feel like you're being ostracized from those that do not accept the gospel. He brings division, not peace. If as believers today, what Jesus is saying, there's going to come a time when all things are going to be restored. It says, I'm going through a baptism. I'm, I'm bearing the judgment. I'm going through the fire so that 
sin will be purged from this creation is that you can embrace that message, you can own it and make it your own and say, I believe that, I accept that, or you can walk away from it. He said, but the, the thing is, he says, you're, we are in a period of time where we live in the already and we live in the not yet, okay? In this sense, Jesus' purpose in coming has already been accomplished. Sin has been judged. And we might know that in our own lives, but we also see sin still have much power in this world. Jesus comes to bring peace, that we can have peace with him. And yet there's often still division among people, quite often because of who Jesus is. See, the, the point is of this passage is, is that the day is coming. Is, as we look at this passage in the light of the rest of Scripture, he said, the day is coming when all of that is going to be resolved. All of that's going to be resolved. When sin is going to be purged, when restoration is going to come, where peace is going to reign, it's already here in some ways, but it's not yet here in its full expression. But that's Jesus' mission. And Jesus is not going to fail in accomplishing his mission. Do you believe that? Do you believe that one day all things will be restored? That everything will be as it should be? That's our hope, that Jesus is going to accomplish his mission. So we have to understand this about Jesus. We have to understand why he came, what his mission was. Secondly, it says we must understand our times. And this might turn into an hour sermon after all. I really got to pick up the pace here, okay? We must understand our times, 54 to uh, 56. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? We must understand our times. Last week, Aaron, Pastor Aaron reminded us that we can get distracted by things today, and when we get distracted by things today, it keeps us from looking at the future the way we should. Remember that? If you were here. Jesus' point here is that sometimes we know what's coming in the future, but we don't apply it to what we're doing today. He talks to the people. He says, you guys are really good at predicting the weather. And maybe in that place, I don't know, I've never been to Israel, maybe in that place the, the weather was pretty easy to predict. The clouds were coming from the west over the Mediterranean, you knew it was gonna rain later in the day. If the wind was from the south, you knew it was blowing in from the Sinai Peninsula, say, oh, it's gonna be a scorcher today. He said, what do you do? You know how to predict the weather, and you, based on what you know of the future, you do things in the present, okay? So if you know it's gonna be raining, you say, well, maybe this is not the best day to be planting because everything is gonna be washed out later today. Or this is gonna be really hot today, so maybe I'm not gonna do that outside activity that I had planned that I can maybe put off to another day, okay? He says, you can do those sorts of things. 
Just like we got the, the weather report on Friday, it said there's going to be snow. Some of you might have made some adjustments to your plans. Okay? You say, oh, there's going to be snow. I'm going to take the kids sledding on Saturday. Oh, there's going to be snow. Maybe I'm not going to go out Friday night like I had thought about after. Okay? We can do that. Based on what we know of the future, we can make decisions for the present. But then, kind of startling, kind of in your face, Jesus says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're a bunch of hypocrites. He says, you, I think what he's saying is, you know what the coming kingdom is going to be like. These were Jewish people. He says, you know what the king, coming kingdom is going to be like. You know it's going to be, you know, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to establish his rule. Everybody is going to bow before him. Everything is going to be restored. Things are going to be the way they were supposed to be. Uh, in the coming kingdom, but you don't apply it to the present. You know what the future is going to look like, but you don't draw the conclusions about the present. He says, I'm here. I'm here. I'm healing the sick. I'm giving sight to the blind. I'm doing all the things that you would expect are going to happen in the future when the kingdom comes. I'm forgiving sin. I'm feeding thousands of people at a time. But you're missing the connection. You see the future, but you don't see the present. You don't see that I'm the king. What he's saying to these people, he says, you, it's, it's, it's good to know what the future is going to bring, but you have to make decisions based on what you know the future is going to bring, bring as to how you're going to live your lives today. Now, it's the same for us today. Do we know what the future is going to bring? Maybe not all the details. There's a lot of things in the Bible that are about what the future is going to bring. Christ is going to return. The kingdom is going to be established. Uh, sin is going to be banished. There is going to be peace uh, unlike anything we've ever seen before, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We know all those things. But Jesus asked the penetrating question to the people then, as he would ask to us now, so what difference does that make right now? What decisions are you making right now because you know what the future is going to be? Listen, church, God has placed us in this time. We didn't have a choice in it. God has placed us in this time with the difficulties of this time, with the disappointments of this time, with the agonizing reality that sometimes our culture is going in a different direction than what we want it to go. But God has placed us in this time. Do we know what the future is going to bring? Yes. But do we spend our time... crabbing about the present when we should be rejoicing in the future? Do we spend our time saying, I can't live like this when we know that we can because God has all things in his hand? Do you see what Jesus is telling us here? Because we know the future, let's trust him for the present. Okay? Uh, I really have to pick up the pace here, okay? We must understand Jesus' mission. We must understand our times 
we must also understand the urgency of life, 57 to 59. And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. We need to grasp the reality that there's some urgent things in life today. We're alive right now, right? We're all here because we're alive, we're, we're moving about. That's, that's so obvious, I don't need to state it, but I just did. But it's so obvious. But what is also obvious is we don't know when our time is over, do we? We don't know when our time is over. I've, just about a month ago, I started working as a, a one night, yeah, and I mean night, a graveyard shift chaplain at uh, Unity Point Methodist in downtown Peoria. I'll tell you, I've seen more people die in the last month than I did in maybe seven or eight years of pastoral ministry. People are not there because they thought, I'm going to die here in the next week or so. Everybody thinks they're going to live for much longer. And some of these people are elderly, and they probably had some sense that uh, there's death was approaching, but many of them were not. He said, we don't know. He said, there's an urgency to life, Jesus is saying. We don't know how long we're going to be here. And since Jesus is on a mission to rid the world of sin, including the sin that we carry in our own lives, and since the future is clear that ultimately sin is going to be banished from all of creation, and since we know that his mission is going to divide people, whose side do we want to be on? That's the question. Think about what this mean, means, he says in verse 50, 70, 58 and 59, he says, make up your mind now. And in kind of a surprising view of what Jesus is saying, I, Jesus, Jesus is the one that we need to, to listen to. We need to make peace with him now. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed any time at all. See, Jesus, we know from all of Scripture, Jesus is going to be either our Savior or he's going to be our judge. He's going to be our advocate or he's going to be our accuser. He's going to be our friend or he's going to be our enemy. And it all has to do with how we respond to him now. That's why he says, make peace with your accuser now. Because we all have a date where we will stand before the magistrate, before the judge. Make peace with him now. Be reconciled now. Accept his judgment of sin on sin in our behalf now, because we are all headed 
to the date at the courthouse. My dad's family, my dad used to love to tell the story that before he was 23 or 21 or something like that, he had only been in a church twice. Once was for a wedding and once was for a funeral. Outside of that, no Christian background whatsoever outside of a grandpa that would, his father that would read the Bible to him from time to time. But in one of the great works of God, my dad, part of a family of seven siblings, within a space of just a few months, as they understood the urgency of the choice that was set before them, as they became more acquainted with Jesus, all seven of those people gave their lives to Jesus Christ in just a few months. Why? Because there was a preacher that stressed the urgency of that decision. If I could encourage you of anything this morning, I would say, don't count on tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Make peace with Christ now. Make it now. So, just quickly, we need to do this. We need to understand the mission of Jesus. We need to understand our times. We need to understand the urgency of life because our time is short and unpredictable. 13, 1 through 5. There were some present at the very time he told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Evidently, some Galilean pilgrims had come down from Galilee to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices. And Pilate, maybe perhaps thinking that they, because they were from Galilee, that they were rebels or had heard, had gotten some information or one thing or another, he killed them. I'm assuming from what it says right there on the temple grounds. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Which is what most people then would have thought. They most would have thought life is not short and unpredictable. Life is, is pretty predictable. If you do the right thing, you're going to have blessing. If you do the wrong thing, you're going to get swatted down. Jesus said, is, is that what you think is happening here? He says, no, verse 3, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. And he's saying this to the Judeans who thought they were better than the Galileans. Jesus says, let me tell you a different story. Or those 18 in whom the tower in Siloam fell in Jerusalem, okay? So these were the good people. These were the Judeans. Or those 18 in whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. We would call that what today in insurance terms? It was an act of God, right? It wasn't, it wasn't an evil man killing these people. Things happen. It was an act of God. Do you think that they were worst offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Is that your conclusion? Because something bad happened that they were worse? He says, no. He says, you all need to repent. You will all likewise perish. 
He says, life is short, people. Life is unpredictable. He said, we should not think that life is predictable in the sense that things are going well with me right now. I'm sure they'll continue that way. God must approve of what I'm doing because, right, things are going well. He says, don't assume that. Don't assume that. To repent simply means to change your mind, to change your direction, to turn from sin to God. It always goes together with faith. That's how we come to, that's how we come to Jesus. We turn from sin and we turn toward God. It comes, it always goes with faith at the beginning of our Christian life. It always goes with with faith during our Christian life. We repent of what we're doing and we place our faith in Christ. It's what the Apostle Paul says in Acts 20 was the Christian preaching. That was the message. I preached repentance and faith to Jews and Gentiles alike. We need to come because we, uh, we, have, we have to understand the, uh, the mission of Jesus. We have to understand our times that they are short. We must understand the urgency of life because our time is short and unpredictable. And then lastly, in verses six through nine, because our time to serve God is limited. And he told this parable Jesus did to everyone. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. With a fig tree, the people are gonna say to themselves, oh, he's talking about us. This is one of the symbols of the the nation of Israel. Like if Jesus was talking to us today, he would say, there once was a bald eagle. And we'd know right away, oh, he's talking about us Americans, okay? That's what these people knew then. He says, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree. That's an obvious expectation, right? And I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, and the vine dresser answered him, uh, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. And I think we, we go down the wrong trail if we start to look, so, okay, who does this represent? Who does that represent? Here's the point of the parable. God is patient. But God is also just. But God has the expectation from his people that we bear fruit, that we live lives that honor him, that we serve him in ways that he's given us to do. Because our, we need to understand our time is short and unpredictable and our time to serve God is very limited. I've noticed that as, as I've aged, uh, God has called me to different things, okay? I can't do some of the things that I used to be able to do. Uh, you're not gonna find me up here on the roof anymore. I'm just saying. If we need a new roof here, look to somebody else. Don't look to me, okay? I was up there for sanctuary part. I'm not gonna do that anymore. I can't. So during the course of our lives, as we add kids or as we add responsibilities or as we add age, years to our life, things are going to change. But God has called us all to what? To bear fruit. 
So, can I encourage you in something? Next time you kind of hear the Holy Spirit whispering in your ear or tapping on the shoulder and say, what about you? You saw the need. You understand the need. Why don't you do something about it? Is that a wrong expectation for the owner of the vineyard to expect that his fig trees will bear figs? No, that's what we should expect. So if the Holy Spirit taps us on the shoulder or whispers in our ears, let's say, okay, Lord, I, I wouldn't have thought of this on my own. I, it's, it's maybe going to stretch me a little bit, but if that's what you have for me, I want to be faithful. You're going to have to dig up around me a little bit and... Pardon the image, you're going to have to put some manure around my roots. But I want to be one who's going to serve you faithfully. I know many of you are like that. For those of you that are maybe struggling with the call of the Spirit right now, I'd encourage you say yes. Say yes. Our time is limited. So I asked myself the question this week when as I was preparing, what does that look like? What does that look like to live that kind of life? My attention was directed to Acts chapter 20 that I had read this morning. And the Apostle Paul is getting ready to go to Jerusalem. He's, he's kind of aware this is not gonna turn out well. He's probably gonna be taken captive. But he calls the leaders from the church in Ephesus and he meets them in Miletus and he, he talks to them, he says, uh, verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I sent foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. He was serving. And with tears and with trials it happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul wasn't under any illusion that bad things meant that God was displeased with him. He said, this is the way life is how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's our message, right? Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. This is what the Spirit has told me I need to be doing not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And some people tried to say, why go? Paul says, no, I've got to go. This is the Holy Spirit talking. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. True to the end is what God has called us to and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We're talking a lot about judgment in this passage, but God's grace is greater. God is still patient with people like us. So that's why we're going to sing this song as our first song after the message. If you'd stand with me, we'll have a word of prayer. But we're going to sing.
even as we've talked about some kind of hard realities of life, we're going to sing that great song that touches my heart every time I sing it. His mercy is more. His mercy is more. It still is. But don't turn away from him. Today's the day to come. Father, I pray. I pray that you would teach us to not presume upon your mercy. Do not say, I am going to put things off until I feel like I am ready. Today is the day of salvation. And Father, if there are people here who have been delaying that decision, I pray that you would impress upon them the uncertainty of the future. Impress upon them the great work that Christ has accomplished on their behalf to free them from their sins, to grant them forgiveness so that they too might enter in to what God has planned for all eternity. We thank you for your word that we can learn from your word. And I pray, Father, that as we sing this song that we would say, oh God, we thank you for your mercy. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.